I don't know about you, but I like to feel supported. I like to feel like somebody has my back, my six. Uh, so, somebody is there that I can talk to, listen to what I have to say and not judge me. Um, and that's why I love going to BetterHelp.com. That's right. BetterHelp.com has therapists from all around the world that can help you within the next 48 hours. I don't know if you talk to anybody trying to find a therapist, but it takes a while to, to find one nowadays. Every, everybody's getting, that's right, everybody is getting therapy right now. So don't get left out. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. Enjoy your 10% off now because we go to the gym to get, you know, work on our bodies. We got to go somewhere to work on our mental health. BetterHelp.com is that place. That's where you find your person to share with, to talk to, to feel supported. BetterHelp.com. That's the way to go. B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P. Boom, done. It's a wrap. Your progress can start today. No need to stay stuck any longer. No need to feel alone or ashamed. You can feel loved and supported. Go to betterhelp.com. Now, mind you, it's not a crisis. It's not a crisis hotline. You call 988 or any of those 1-800-273-TALK or any of those phone numbers for that. But you go to BetterHelp.com where you want to find somebody who can go on a journey with you, who can listen to you and guide you and help you get unstuck and achieve your goals. BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. Enjoy your 10% off now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is author Chris Ryan. Um, PhD, Chris Ryan, who's written, uh, no PhD. Why yeah, think there's a song? PhD. There's a PhD. No. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. You wrote, uh, civilized to death, which is, uh, the newest book. And then, uh, I was introduced to you because, uh, sex at dawn, which, you know, I, I want to say I felt guilty. We met at a, a dinner party and, uh, and I, I knew you were going to be there. So I got the book and then I didn't read it. I just read it. I read it like, <laughs> I read it 10 years later. And I remember you looking at me going, yeah, I wrote sex at dawn. It's okay if you didn't read it. And I, I was like embarrassed. And I was like, I'm going to read it as soon as I get home. And then 10 years later, I, I read the book, and That's then, funny. but I read both books in like in the same month. I don't know. You know, I just, you know, I go on these, but anyway, uh, I'm excited to have you on because you've really expanded my awareness of exploring our past and um, our ancestral past and our cultural past. And, and it helps me to understand some of my, um, what, what is it? Drives, desires, habits. Um, But I want to start off with, because you are up in the Canyon uh, and, and my my um, my best story of us is we were walking through the canyon and someone's dog got loose. And I really want to start off with dogs. I want to tie this into addiction. But it was interesting. I don't know if you remember this. Remember that, that, that lady's dog got loose? No. You're shaking your head. So you and I are walking. We had just went hiking. We had climbed some rocks. And yeah. we, we were t- you were telling me about your vision of uh, building a compound and uh, a commune and all this. And as we're walking through uh, these houses and there's this white dog that just comes beaming out of this lady's house. 
charging towards us and it's off leash and is barking. I throw my hands up as if like the cops have just pulled guns out on me. And you bend down and grab a rock as if you're going to throw the rock at the dog and you go, and you like growl at it. And the dog immediately backs down. Mm. And you look at me and you go, hmm, interesting. You put, you put your hands up. And I never, I never forgot that. White privilege. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and to this day, I think about it. And you explained to me, you said that dogs, uh, a lot of dogs have been abused because so many people get rescue dogs and they've had rocks thrown at them. And you learned, I think, in Thailand that if you act like you're picking up a rock or throw a rock at a dog, it'll back it down. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did learn that. I don't remember whether it was Thailand or where it was, but I remember some stray dog came. It might've been India, actually. Some dog, really nasty looking dog came at us and whoever I was with did that. And there, and there were no rocks, uh, but he just, you know, kind of got down and pretended he was picking up a rock and that dog just veered right off. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. He's like, yeah, that's what you do. That's because they've had rocks thrown at them. They know what that means. So, yeah. But I mean, look, it was a white dog. So you put your hands up. If it had been a black dog, you know, <laughs> I'd had my hands up. Yeah, yeah. I would I would have walked towards the dog like, what's up, brother? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we all good here, right? Nothing to see. Um, what's interesting about the, the dog and I want to tie this kind of into addiction and, 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 you know, and the sex at dawn and civilized to death in that when I I struggle with sugar addiction right now, um, my father, he, he drank a little much and, and everybody has their, their thing that they're, they're struggling with that they either misuse, abuse, or, or are addicted to. And in a sugar addiction world, we call it the red dog, right? Mm. In Winston Churchill, who struggled with depression, as I do also, I'm like currently like in a wave of depression. And I know when, when I'm in a depressive state because I, it, like I'll forget to shower and I'll wear the same thing over and over again. But he called his the black dog. And right. what you taught me that day, though, was to turn towards and face the thing that scares you. Has that always been your modus of operation or is that something you had to learn or there areas where you're better at it than others? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, I, I think I've always had, uh, a hunger for reality. Let's just put it that way. Like I've always felt like uh, I get annoyed by bullshit and I want the truth. And a lot of times the truth is painful and uh, sad, you know, like I, I, I love walking out of a movie theater feeling like my world's been rocked. Um, and the older I get, I think, you know, the more I, it sort of comes to consciousness, but I do feel that like, I've always had this thing, like, give me the real shit, even if it's hard, even if it makes me cry, even if it's painful. And there's some perverse kind of 
pleasure in, uh, you know, in uh, I, I'm having trouble coming up with examples. Yeah, you know, like my dad died three years ago, and I think about him all the time. And and now I, I just got back to L.A. and I slept for the first time ever in the room where he spent his last years, and and it's really hard. It's still really present for me. But I prefer that to just distracted non-life, you know, numbness. And, um, you know, and then when I started traveling a lot, I, uh, I was using psychedelics a lot. And uh, one of the things that I like about psychedelics and, and that helped me um, in my 20s was that I felt like they kind of helped me face stuff, face truth and reality and mortality and, you know, think about things that it's so easy to just sort of skip past in normal consciousness because we're distracted by all this bullshit and you can just, you know, oh, you know, my parents are going to die. Yeah, but let's watch some porn and just not, you know, think about that or, you know, let's have a beer. Let's let's go party or let's, you know, but you take some acid and you go for a walk in the woods and it's, it's like there's no getting away from whatever's coming out of your mind, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and that's also why I love to travel. And that was a really important part of my life uh, in my 20s and into my 30s was just lots of travel, lots of reading, um, lots of tripping, uh, lots of writing. Um, and, uh, but, but I don't think it, there's nothing noble about it, right? It's just, I just want to fucking be alive while it lasts. I want to live and, and, you know, if it hurts, that's all right. Um you know, the opposite, it's like they say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference, right? And I kind of feel like it's the same thing with experience. The opposite of pleasure isn't pain, it's numbness. So there's a value in pain. Pain reminds you you're alive, you're, you're still kicking, you're still feeling, you know? And that's better than not feeling. I, I love how you started off talking about a hunger for reality, and uh, that, you know, tying back into the books that you've written, Civilized to Death and Sex at Dawn, is there's this idea that, you know, people don't want to be too needy or too codependent. But in the books you share that because we're more tribal, we're so we're together, uh, you know, all the time, you didn't have we didn't have the hunger for that. Like the tribe was there 24 seven. People were tuned in to what you were experiencing, what you were going through. You were surrounded when you were in pain. You were surrounded when you were uncomfortable, when you were crying, when you were grieving, when you went through loss. And now in today's society, you have to seek that out. I have to seek out mental health care. I have to seek out someone to comfort me and console me when I'm in pain. How did you, you talked about your father passing away three years ago. Was there a process that you intentionally went on to uh to help grieve um well he was he was uh circling the drain for a while so it wasn't like it was he was hit by lightning or something you know like and i remember uh a few months before he died i was talking with a friend and i was like i think i mean he's been dying for a long time now bit by bit and sort of fading away and i kind of feel like when he dies 
um, I'm going to be okay. And maybe, you know, I said to my buddy, like, maybe I'm kidding myself. I don't know, because I've never had a parent who died. And, and I know there's certain things in life you just can't imagine until you experience it. Um, you know, but I said, I, I kind of think I've been pre-grieving, you know, like uh, incrementally. And my buddy's like, yeah, dude, like, you know, and, and my buddy had known my dad. We were friends when we were kids. He'd known my dad for a long time. And he's like, you know, that's not Frank, right? Like your dad, the guy I know, the guy you're thinking of when you think of your dad, that's not him. He's already died. So um, I kind of look at it as the day it, he died was the day he stopped dying, you know? Um, so I don't, I, I didn't have any intentional process or, or any particular, uh, system that I could recommend to anyone. I would just say, like, I think about him all the time and he's very present and, uh, I had a really good relationship with him. So I'm, I'm grateful, you know, there, there's no unresolved rage or, you know, issues that, that I feel badly that I never got around to talking to him about. Um, none of that. So I feel very fortunate in that respect. Yeah. Well, my dad passed away. I, uh, every year I write him a letter and it's, <laughs> it starts off with rage and then it moves into hurt and then it moves into peace. And I know that you're a writer. Did at any point, did you write to your dad or it, did you journal anything out that kind of helped you to unwind some thoughts? Um, I don't know. I, I use my podcast, um, in, in lieu of journaling sometimes, you know, I've got, I've been doing my podcast for over a decade now. Like it's the longest I've ever done anything with any kind of consistency. And so I've got different segment types in the podcast. Like there's the normal sort of interview thing like you and I are doing right now. Um, that's the bulk of them. But then there are these things I call Roma, which is ranting out my ass, which is where I just turn on the mic and I just talk for a while, whatever. And I'll, I might have some notes, um, you know, but there's a reason my podcast is called Tangentially Speaking, because I go all over the place and I like to feel like if something pops into my head, I just go with it and don't worry about it. Uh, whether it's in a conversation with someone else and, you know, we, you know, if I'm talking to you and I know you're a, you know, a, a life coach and a comedian, like, okay, we might start with that, but we might end up talking about, you know, Caribbean food or something, you know, who knows? Um, and I like that. So, so I like to do that. I sort of get into a zone myself and I'll start out wanting to talk about something, but I end up talking about my dad or I end up talking about, you know, another friend who died that I heard about recently. And, um, and so I find that really cathartic and, and the audience seems to enjoy it as well, you know, because it's just really pure stream of consciousness. And a lot of people will write to me afterwards and be like, dude, like that was so, um, you know, that was really helpful for me when you shared X, Y, and Z. And I'll be like, shit, did I talk about that? Because I don't go back and listen to it. I just record it and post it. Um, and I've never gone back and listened. I've got 540 episodes. I've never gone back and listened to any of them. So sometimes I'll get an email from someone who's like, hey, I discovered your podcast and I've started at one 
and I'm up to like 120 now. And it's like so weird. Like you're engaging with me as I was eight years ago. You know, you're more in touch with where I was eight years ago than I am. It's it's such a, I mean, you know, you've got these weird one-way relationships with people. Um, it's pretty intense. But no, I never, I, I mean, I, I wrote... I mean, it's sort of touching. I, I, um, you know, I've written my dad letters over the years. My dad was a writer, um, and he always really encouraged my writing. And uh, I was listening to some interview you did earlier. Uh, my dad was teaching at Penn State when I was born. I know you ended up at Ball State, but you, you know, you started at Penn State, um, and. Uh, yeah, so I, I wrote my dad a letter when I was in India. It was my first trip to Asia. Uh, it was 87, so that makes me 26, I think. I bought a one-way ticket to India and spent a couple of years in Asia just backpacking around. And I wrote a letter to both my parents just sort of, um, you know, thanking them for being so cool. And... Um, yeah, after my dad died, I found out that he carried that letter. Where, where do you where do you feel that in your body right now? Uh, my throat, like constriction in my throat. I don't know if it's telling me to shut up or or what. <laughs> I find it. I mean, here I am, you know, spontaneously talking about this, but. I, f I feel like emotionally I'm okay. I'm not in denial. I, you know, I'm very uh, present uh, with his life and death and all that. Um, but it is hard for me to talk about. You know, one of the things that when we hung out, you know, besides the dog, I felt like in one day you, you were in some ways the, the dad that I, I never had. Because I was like, wow, you taught me about dogs. And then uh, we went and did archery. And, <laughs> oh, right? Geez, that's right. right. And, uh, and I, was, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so good. And it was interesting to me because my last name is Flowers. And we don't know too much about my family beyond my grandfather. And so we think that Flowers might have some type of French connection because flowers uh, would have been translated into flowers, and that's what they used to call archers. So mm. when I, you know, when I did archery for the first time with you, actually it was the second time, and I was like, well, I'm pretty good. I was like, maybe I got that French uh, archery blood in me, you know? So I was walking around on cl cloud nine for a day. But what is it about archery that is appealing to you? Because for me... I, I found it is kind of uh, meditative. And, and what's your experience of archery? Yeah, well, that was a particular period where I was um, training with that compound bow um, because I was planning to go hunting in Hawaii. Uh, a buddy of mine was um, who's pretty into hunting, uh, Kyle Tierman, 
Uh, you you met right? Yeah, yeah. You met because he and I did the motherfucker awards, and you yeah, came and did that. Yeah, and that, then he went on to Mudwater, and I did some things with Mudwater. So yeah, right. we, we have a number of connections with Kyle T. Yep. Yeah. So Kyle turned me on to that, and Kyle was like, "Look, I'm doing this pig hunt, uh, you know, in four months or something. If you want to come, you know, we hook you up with a bow." And so that's why I was training with it then. And uh, so it was mostly for the hunting. I wanted to have the experience of hunting with a bow um, because I've never been a hunter and it's never sort of, um, it's never been part of my life particularly. But, you know, it's like I said earlier, like I, I have a hunger for reality. I eat meat and it's like, okay, I've been eating meat all these years. Let's face it. Let's kill something. Let's see the process. Let's face the, you know, the reality of the situation. So when he invited me to to do that, I jumped at it. And um, but I wanted it to be good enough with the bow that I wasn't going to just hurt an animal, you know. And um, so yeah, luckily I I had the experience. I killed a pig first shot. Um, super clean, painless, as far as I know, <laughs> it went down fast. Um, yeah. And that was an interesting experience. I, I had a bow when I was a kid, a regular, uh, regular bow, long bow. And I, I think that the beauty of that is that you get the, the sort of the grace and the movement of the arrow flying through space. And it's, it's, it's like the difference between taking a train and taking an airplane, right? Like an airplane's a rifle and a, and a bow is a train. Like you can see the movement. Like, yeah, it's faster than you could throw something. It's faster than a spear or throwing a rock or something. You are using a tool, but you can see that arrow fly through the air. It's still in the realm of human perception, right? As opposed to a rifle, it's just like, boom, and something happens, but you don't see the bullet flying through the air. You don't experience it in that sort of sensual way. So for me, that's the beauty of, of archery is that you can, even with a compound bow where you have you know technological advantages, still you shoot the arrow, you watch it fly through the air. And it either misses or it hits or you know you see the whole thing happen. So it doesn't go beyond the limits of human perception i i think that's relaxing i i it's beautiful that you described it as kind of a, a sensual experience to see the arrow flow through the air and i never thought about that with a bullet and i think you know like when we watch movies that's always the coolest part when they slow the bullet down right and you see it and then you see it breaking the skin and and going through the different layers of the body and it's just something visceral uh, and and kind of tactile about it that you're like, oh, that's so cool. You ever um, see you ever see a movie called Lord of War with Nicolas Cage? I have, but I do not remember it. There's the the opening sequence, and anyone who's listening to this and wants to look it up, it's on it's on YouTube. The opening sequence where they're rolling the credits, it it, it tracks a bullet from the factory where it's being stamped out and it's shot from the perspective of the bullet. So it's like going down this, this assembly line and getting stamped. And then it's in, then it's in a box, an ammo box. And you see like this guy's face and he puts the lid on the box 
and then it's dark and then you see someone opens it and they're inspecting it and then it goes back in and you can tell it's on a ship now and then it's dark for a while and then it opens again and it's this African dude and obviously the the munitions have been you know sent to Congo or somewhere and then it's like these guys and they're riding around on these jeeps and it's this whole thing shot from the perspective of the bullet and then the final part of it is the guy shoots and you're flying along with the bullet as if there's like a camera on the bullet and it hits a guy and you see it like go like you just described like through into his brain it's really intense really beautifully shot disturbing as hell but really beautifully shot super creative yeah, there's, you know, when people think of hunting, they, they think of it as, oh, you're just killing an animal, it's unarmed. But to me, like you said, there's so many com- parts of it where, one, there's a sensuality of seeing the, the arrow flow through the air. Two, usually we hunt in groups, which gets back to our kind of ancestral, uh, yeah. you know, uh, cultural DNA where we like to do things in pairs. I mean, that's why group classes are so popular also, uh, or why people enjoy them and soul cycle is making uh, so much money. But three, I took a, a class when I was in college, ROTC, where we had to shoot an M16. And the thing that I remembered from that is how I had to control my breathing. Mm. Can you talk to me about the breath work involved in uh, you know, archery and hunting and how you apply that to maybe other areas of your life? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I don't want to come across like any kind of an expert here. Like I'm definitely not an expert at archery or hunting or any of that. I have very brief experience. But the thing that that I remember and, and that I think about is, is the value of, of – how do I say this? It's like it's like a, a good musician understands the value of silence, right? That's the backdrop upon which you create your music. Uh, a great painter understands how to use empty space on the canvas to create impact, right? Any kind of creation involves an understanding of non-creation. And so with archery, the way I would apply that in terms of hunting and and shooting a rifle or or shooting anything is you take breaths and then you stop breathing. You just hold the breath. You take like half a breath and you hold. And that's when you take the shot. When you're not, the air isn't coming in, it's not going out. You're also not like holding your breath. So you're like struggling. It's you find this center point of peace and calm and non-movement and that's where you want to be right and i imagine for someone like you who goes on stage and performs that's where you try to get in your head either before you walk on stage or you try to find it when you're out on stage and you're nervous and whatever but even even in my own experience when i've done you know presentations and i'm standing in front of a few hundred people of course i'm fucking shaky and weird and i walk out and you know uh, my body's reacting but within a couple of minutes i find the that center place where i'm not hyperventilating anymore and i'm 
like, okay, here I am. This is cool. And, you know, I can do this. I've done this before and let's have some fun with this. So I think that's, that's how I would say I apply that kind of, that same kind of thinking um, or experience to life. And, and I think the value of one of the great values of hunting or rock climbing or, you know, diving or whatever, riding a motorcycle is that you're aware, but you're not thinking. And, and for me, that's a super relaxing place to be. That's a really special state uh, to be in. Um, I guess you could call it a, you know, a flow state where you're definitely in the moment, but you're not doing that bullshit in your head where you're, you know, telling stories about it or thinking about how you're going to explain this and how am I going to, Oh, should I write about this later? Or, Oh, this would be cool if that were happening. And blah, blah, blah. this is like that other time, you know, the fucking drunk monkey talking in your head. It's just like, no, I'm just here. I'm just here. Just doing this, not thinking about doing this, you know? So I think that's part of that flow state is just to get those voices to stop. Yeah, I just had a buddy on yesterday I was talking to, and he was saying how things like surfing, sailing, um, I forget what the third thing he did, but, oh, uh, you know, flying a helicopter. These are things oh. that demand your full attention, where you are aware, alert, um, and, and, you know, there's no room for distraction, like you're just present and grounded. For yourself, Chris, you know, we talked about archery. We talked about, you know, writing and uh, traveling, uh, psychedelics. How else do you ground yourself? I know that you have a background in martial arts. Uh, what got you into that? And is that something that you're still incorporating today? Um, I got into martial arts because I was getting beat up, you know, <laughs> which I think is the same path a lot of people have taken. Um I started doing uh, martial arts when I was eight, I think, and um, I was super into it. Uh, it was a for, it was a kung fu uh, school in Western Pennsylvania, and yeah, I was super into it. I was not, you know, I wasn't like you. I wasn't athletically gifted. Uh, I wasn't like I was the last guy to get picked for the team, whatever it was. You know, I wasn't fast. I wasn't coordinated. I wasn't particularly strong. It was just like, whatever, just another kind of dorky dude. And, um, but when I started doing Kung Fu, I found something that I was good at that felt like it happened kind of naturally for me. I really liked the meditation aspect. You know, there was a lot of meditation in the school. Um, and, there was something really beautiful about the fact that it was based on animal movements. And I found that really interesting um, because I was very into nature and sort of, uh, you know, non-human uh, aspects of life. And uh, yeah, that was a really interesting experience or years of experience for me. I, I was teaching uh, after a while and I was like one of the youngest teachers in the school. And, and then like some weird, very weird shit went down. Um, it's kind of a long story, but basically the, the head teacher of the school 
killed his father. And his father was like the best in the world at this style. I think his father was like in his early 50s maybe. And the son who ran the school was in his late 20s, mid-20s. And uh, it was really weird. Like I had a dream the night it happened and I, I recorded the dream and then I went to school and and all the shit was going down about because it was like big news in this town that that night um, they had had this fight with samurai swords and it was this whole fucking thing. I told this story on Rogan's podcast the first time I was on Rogan's podcast and uh, and I didn't really appreciate like the reach of that podcast. I told that story. And then like a week later, I got an email from somebody saying, Hey, I heard you telling the story on the Joe Rogan podcast. I was the district attorney when that happened in that little town in Western Pennsylvania. And, you know, I could tell because there were things I didn't know about the case. Cause I was 14, I think at the time. Um, and he was like, yeah, I can tell you, here's what happened. And here's what, you know, here's, and he filled me in on the rest of it. And I was just thinking like, God, thank God I didn't lie about it, you know, or like exaggerate some shit or whatever. <laughs> Cause there's like somebody listening out there who knows. Um, but yeah, it's that, that was uh, an interesting thing. I, I honestly don't think it's an important part of my life anymore. I mean, on some foundational level, it probably is. Um, but not in terms of, you know, like I'm not any kind of badass who's going to win a street fight. Um, the main thing I remember, I studied Aikido later as an adult and Aikido really spoke to me because of the philosophical and, and psychological aspects of, you know, like it, it's, I find it very applicable to relationships and, and interactions because in Aikido, the, as I understand it, Aikido was developed uh, for unarmed monks to defend themselves against armed attackers. So when there's like someone attacking you with a sword and you don't have a sword, well, you're not going to like block, right? <laughs> That's not going to work. So you you get out of the way of the flow of the sword. So it's all about... Again, like we were talking about earlier, staying centered and calm and don't panic and, you know, don't freak out. But this guy is taking this space. We'll give him that space. Step aside. Let him have that movement. And then you just sort of guide him to where you want him to go without opposing the momentum of his action. So, you know, in terms of applying that to to a normal day-to-day -day interaction if somebody's like you know getting in my face because <clears throat> you know whatever they disagree with me and, and think I'm stupid instead of me arguing about whether I'm stupid or not just like let them have that like yeah okay I could be wrong you're right yeah you know, I'm no expert on this stuff I don't know like it doesn't hurt me to just let them have that space right and you know, avoiding a conflict is generally better, especially if you can avoid it in a way that gets you where you wanted to go anyway. You know, like, I don't want to spend my life arguing with strangers, although I do spend too much time on Twitter. Twitter is addictive. They, they, they figured us out how to hack. We're, 
you know, we're worried about robots and androids, but I, I feel like uh, the fact that we are, I feel like we're more electrical beings than we're aware of. I mean, like if you have a heart attack, I got to use electricity to bring you mm. back. You know, I got to mm. shoot that through your body, right? Um, but you mentioned something that I, and that I want to tie back into this hunger for reality. But, and you were talking about Aikido and how the philosophical principles can be applied to life. And also this idea of embrace, deflect, but never oppose. You know, mm -hmm. I've heard Bruce Lee say that. How would you apply that? Because this is a suicide prevention podcast. And a lot of my listeners struggle with obsessive thinking. Uh, whether it's to end their life, whether it's uh, a obsession over an addiction of like, I, I got to have, I need, I want. Is, does that idea of embracing the thought of not opposing the thought apply? Does that work with obsessive thoughts? And how would you apply that? Yeah, I think it does, at least for me. Um, I, I think that when you oppose something, you're giving it energy. Right, you're you're putting your energy into a relationship with that thing. You're giving it something to push up against, and um, I find that, you know, I think this is hard to articulate, um, but I feel like we have a very overly simplified understanding of what strength is and what weakness looks like and um a lot of us are trying to be strong but we end up weakening ourselves because the truly strong thing would be to accept but acceptance looks like weakness to people um you know who who haven't come to a nuanced understanding of these things um you know dominance so if I'm, if I, to make it like super crude, right? If I'm walking down the street and some dude pulls out a gun and says, give me your money. Well, am I going to fight him for the $40 I have in my fucking wallet? No, of course not. I'm not going to risk getting shot. So I give him the money. Now who's dominant here? It looks like he's dominant, right? But I chose how to handle that situation and allowed that to happen. I feel that that's the right move to make. I'm, I behaved appropriately. So I feel that I dominated the situation, right? There doesn't need to be a loser and winner. It doesn't need to be zero sum all the time. And I feel like we can look at so many things that way. Like, you know, I've had, addictive issues in the past. And what I find is that the more I fight against it, the more entrapped I get. And so for me, the thing is to just sort of be like, accept it, don't fight against it and allow it to, to sort of fade away rather than fighting it. Um, and I think, you know, I think people are afraid of getting old, for example, right? They're dying their hair. They're going to the gym all the time, working out, trying to hold that six pack and don't do this. And I think that there's something really strong about aging gracefully. I see a lot of dudes who spend a lot of time in the gym. I see weakness there, 
right? Not physical. Sure, they can bench press a lot and they can do this and do that. But I see a guy who's scared, you know, or women getting, you know, their surgery and their fake this and their fake that and their injections of this. Like, oh, come on. That's so, those are expressions of fear. Those aren't expressions of strength, of, of wisdom, right? And so I feel like that's an insight that's very difficult for Americans because the culture is so overwhelming and it's so, it's so much about youth and winning and money and fame and you got to have all that shit. And it's really hard because people are running so fast, it's hard for them to just stop and say, wait a minute, do I really want any of this stuff? Is this stuff really making me happy? Is, it's, it's like, you know, talking about hunting. It's like if you grew up in a culture where it's all about being the best deer hunter, everyone's hunting deer all the time and you're learning how to be a great deer hunter, it's really hard to step back and say, wait a minute, do I even like the taste of deer? Like, do I even want to be doing this? And so for me, like, you know, my 20s when I was traveling and, and experimenting with psychedelics and reading a lot and thinking, that was like, how do I want to spend this life? What really matters here? What, what's the currency that's actually valuable to me as opposed to what I'm being told, you know? And so I think a, a lot of people who are dealing with a crisis in their lives, the problem is that they have spent their lives pursuing something that they actually never wanted in the first place. And so they get it and they're like, fuck, what have I been doing? I put my ladder up on the wrong wall, you know, and that's really rough. Um, but there's no shame in taking your ladder and moving to another wall. There's no shame in crawling down, climbing down the ladder and just spending some time figuring out where do you actually want to be? What really resonates with you? Ignore what the fucking culture tells you. Ignore the beer and the trucks and the pretty girls. and the, That's all fake. What really makes you feel good? And then go for that. And, you know, that'll work out a lot, a lot better. Is that does that show up in your body differently earlier when we talked about kind of grieving and feeling it in the throat when you I think so many people have a challenging time uh, trusting their gut, right? Because yeah. they spent so much of their life listening to what other people are doing, the programming from TV, movies, you know, podcasts, books, all that stuff. And so it's like, is this what I want? I mean, my stomach is feeling this. Is there for you? Is there a, a way it shows up in your body where you know that you're on the mark? <laughs> I get a hard on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or the or the the sort of mental corollary to that, you know? It's like, yeah, there's a there's a resonance. There's a feeling of like, man, yeah, that feels good. Like that's what I want. I want more of that, you know? Um and, but it's got to be real, you know, it, like you can take a drug, whether it's psychedelics or, or MDMA or something, and you get that feeling of like, whoa, with MDMA, this feeling of like peace and love and calm and open heartedness. And now that doesn't, the message there isn't, I should take MDMA every day. The message is, 
it feels really good to open my heart. It feels really good to be peaceful and calm and express my love to the people in my life and connect more deeply with people and feel my body and stretch my legs. And like, I feel like those experiences are indications of the direction that we should be going and not uh, a destination in itself, right? You can't use, I heard someone describe psychedelics as windows, not doors, right? Like you can see, oh, okay, I see where I need to go. But you're not going to crawl through that. You still got to go find the door and find your way in. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like you're, you're spot on. I'm, I'm kind of in the early stages of thinking about writing uh, the next book, which, which may be a, it's kind of a health book, but it's a parody of a health book because it's written by, a, you know, an overweight, uh, not very in shape dude in his sixties. Who's not a doctor. That would be me. Um, but it's about, it's about seeing, you know, being on the same team as your body and not fighting your body. Like this whole, you know, no pain, no gain. Fuck that. That's I, my body's not a machine to be, you know, uh, driven. Um, and there's a lot of research that backs this up. You know, if you run uh, a mile or you walk a mile, the cardio benefits are the same. And you don't fuck up your knees and your back and your ankles and all that, right? So th th we've got this idea, like, you got to suffer. You got to work. You got to sacrifice. You got to, you know, Rogan's always talking about tame your inner bitch. No, man, I like my inner bitch. I, you know, I, I don't want to tame her. I want to like party with her. I want her to, you know, like I, I want to be at peace with her. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot to be learned from learning to listen to our bodies. And when our body is telling us we're on the right path, it comes in the form of pleasure. So, you know, it's like we're, as Americans, we're taught to be suspicious of pleasure. I think that's criminal. Um, pleasure is, is telling us we're, we're going in the right direction generally. Now, of course, there are different kinds of pleasure. And sometimes, you know, if your body's telling you just eat ice cream and, and, you know, drink a lot of vodka, well, okay, you got to be suspicious of that. But, uh, the first step is to learn to distinguish the true voice of your body and of your inner wisdom, as opposed to the voices of the advertising and the ego and your mother and your, you know, whatever influences you've had. Um, but then once we find that voice, the more you listen to it and respect it, the louder it gets and the easier it is to hear. Yeah. You know, I, I forget what podcast I was listening to and, and the guy was talking about fasting as a way to listen to your inner voice or at least to tune in to it. And he had an interesting idea of like, we like to put a time limit on everything. Like, all right, you got to fast for 12 hours, 18 hours, 36 hours, such and such. And sometimes a 30 minute fast might be all you need to really hone in and listen to what your voice or, or what your body needs. Right. And so, it, you know, it goes back to listening to your body instead of looking at your clock or your Fitbit or your, you know, mm. whatever, uh, timed iWatch 
thing, wait until it beeps to tell you to go <laughs> run, uh, which I have nothing against. I think that th those tools are great, but I, I think it it's a way to, to ultimately the goal should be, how do I listen to my body more effectively? And recognizing it's not about time. It's, a, it's about a feel and trusting how you feel um, versus thinking I have to do something for a set amount of. There was this cooking show and the guy was, uh, the chef was teaching some other people how to cook eggs. And they're like, how long do we cook it for? And he goes, until it's done. And they go, All right, well, how long is that? And he's like, when it's done. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and the, the idea behind that is like, we, are, we wanted things to be so perfect and cookie cutter and we're such a, so afraid of making mistakes. We want to get it right the first time. And, and the lesson I took from that is keep practicing making eggs until you can learn to recognize when they're done so that you have your own inner timer versus always having to rely on this external uh, timer to tell you, you know, when it's done, when you're on the mark, when it works for you, you know. Um, I, I forgot why, how I got off on that tangent, but going back to, you know, a hunger for reality, you know, you traveled so much and, you know, I love listening to your podcast and, and, I, and, and one of your recent ones, you were talking about how uh, they say you're welcome first instead of hello. <laughs> in, in Tanzania. Yeah, in yeah. Tanzania. I thought that was really cool. Um in terms of getting back to our hunter-gatherer days, there's something, like, screaming from me to, to I want to live, like, in a dorm. Like, I don't know why dorm-style living is not more common. And I bring this up because you're, like, living out your van. You're staying with friends. Like, you could, you financially could live in your own space, in your own house, in your own whatever but you're you're always communing with other people and traveling and staying in hostels and, and things like that. Talk to me about that. Uh, talk to me about the travel and talk to me about this uh, sharing spaces with so many different people for a lot of your life. Yeah, I, I, I try to integrate the things I've learned writing those books um, into my life as much as I can, um, you know, without getting too um, radical about it, um, you know, because that introduces its own kind of stress, right? So, um, but I definitely, there there are things that are effective in improving our quality of life um, and we know that they're effective because they're things that resonate with our hunter-gatherer past, which is, you know, 95% plus of our existence as a species. Um, so, you know, if you want to make your, your dog feel good, look at the way wolves live and try to replicate as much of that as you can in your dog's life, right? So he wants to be in a pack. He wants to run a lot. He wants to eat meat. Uh, you know, he, he wants to have like a clear hierarchy within the pack of, you know, where he fits in. Uh, he wants to feel safe and surrounded by, you know, dogs or people or whoever has his back. You know, he wants to have a job. He wants to feel like he's contributing. All that stuff comes from the way wolves live, right? And so dogs have a lot of that in them. 
So you look at hunter-gatherers, they're wolves to us. They're, that's, you know, we're the dogs, we're the poodles or the pugs or whatever. And so the things that really, some of the things that make us happy are campfire, sitting around a fire, looking at that fire. Now we've got computers and phones and Kindles and tablets and all that shit, but that's all just a cheap version of a campfire. Campfire, that frequency of light relaxes us. It helps us sleep better. It it softens our hearts. So we're you're going to tell stories sitting around a fire that you wouldn't tell sitting around a conference table, you know? Um, looking at the stars, jumping in a river, uh, you know, smelling pine scent in the air when you're sleeping at night, uh, you know, like watching the sunrise in the desert. I mean, there's so many things that are so cheap and easy to have. And one of them is is being with friends and, you know, and moving. Like the, I, I feel like when I'm in the van, I'm kind of doing this uh, nomadic hunter-gatherer life. And, and we go and we meet friends because I've been doing this seven, I think this is the seventh year. And we're leaving in like two days. We're just outfitting the van now, getting ready to go to Montana um, and you know, we've got friends that we see every year. So it's kind of a circuit and we go and the kids are a year older and we float down the river and, you know, we catch up and it's just so nice to have this circuit and this community. And, and we do these get togethers, you know, where we say, okay, we're going to be in, you know, in Boise next Thursday, we'll be at this brew pub at 7 PM. Come on down. And there might be five people, there might be 50 people who show up. And it's awesome. You know, it's so cool. And not not just like they all want to meet me or something, it's they meet each other, right? So it's forming this sort of, you know, sand in the pearl or, or in the oyster that that uh, gives them the opportunity to, to meet each other and to form these communities. So that, that gives me a lot of um, comfort to uh to see that you know we're embedded in this community of of good people and again you know there's there's research that shows that if you feel that you are part of a community of support people who support each other that has more of an effect on your health than whether you smoke how, what your weight is, how much exercise you get, like any other factor, that's the most important thing. So if you live alone, you're lonely, you feel exposed, you feel vulnerable, nobody's got your back, you don't have anyone you can confide in, that's really bad for your health because we're social beings. You think about the worst penalty they can give to the most nasty, murderous bastard, it's solitary confinement, right? That's torture for our species. So it's really important that we're part of a community. And I think with, you know, we were talking about addiction earlier. I think a big part of addiction is that people feel they don't have any meaning in their lives. They don't have anything that makes them happy, that gives them pleasure. And if the only thing, the only place you can find pleasure is in some substance or some gambling or, you know, whatever it is, then you're going to do it because you need pleasure. There's nothing shameful about that. We all need pleasure, but you can find pleasure in community that's much more meaningful and, and better for you and good for you. 
Um, and I think that's one of the things about 12 step programs and, um, you know, rehab and all it's about community. You go in there and you're with people, you have shared experience, you have people who aren't judging you, you have people you can confide in. I think for a lot of people, if they had that, they wouldn't develop the addiction in the first place, you know? Yeah. That was one of the most powerful things I got from reading your books is this idea that, you know, mothers used to breastfeed their babies up until they were three or four, that amount of skin to skin contact, um, you know, to, in today's society, especially, you know, in America, and you see it spreading throughout the world where it, it seems like the, the push is to separate the baby from the mother as soon as possible. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we're almost, we're like shaming, you know, breastfeeding in public, uh, get the baby on a bottle immediately. And and then we wonder why, you know, the baby then grows up and is unable to self-soothe. And so, you know, that baby bottle then leads to, you know, a Corona bottle at some point down the road. And, and I'm sure that there's probably some uh, science or research uh, done on that. But, yeah, this idea of, of community and connection. And I, I never thought about that of like, really, you're just seeking pleasure and, um, and, and I think so many of us have been scared from it. I know for me, I went to a Catholic school and, mm. you know, so like the guilt, the sin, the pleasuring yourself, like masturbation, you know, like I'm just now realizing that, um, you know, masturbation is pleasurable to an extent. It was the, um, pairing it with porn that I think be- makes it disastrous, uh, because it, it it's hard to, um, not associate one with the other, and then you end up isolating, withdrawing from your intimate relationships. But there's a way to incorporate self-pleasure, masturbation with your partner, with your significant other. Because um, I know in Sex at Dawn, you talk so much about how polyamory was uh, used as a way of connecting people, a way to bond people. And when I read books by like Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, all these conquerors, the first thing they did was have everybody hook up because they knew that the, the faster that the two different cultures hooked up, then the less war and tension there would be. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I never thought of Genghis Khan as like a polyamory advocate. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the, the thesis of Sex at Dawn is that um, – for Homo sapiens, sexuality has been co-opted from, uh, you know, a purely reproductive function, which is what it is in in most mammals, to a social function. So it's um, it's it's used as a way of establishing and maintaining um, social networks that are based on trust and and shared pleasure and and all that. And, you know, when, when I sort of give that little elevator pitch to people, a lot of times they're shocked and like, oh, that's ridiculous. But it's like there's a handful of species of mammals. There are thousands of mammals. And there are only a handful that have sex when the female can't get pregnant. Right? Like, obviously, we're one of them. Right? We have, we have blowjobs and, you know – masturbation and have sex when the female's already pregnant or 
or menstruating or, or postmenopausal. I mean, there are many, many times in many ways we have sex where the female cannot get pregnant. Um, and the only other mammals that do that are chimps, bonobos, and dolphins. And they're all highly intelligent, highly social species. And chimps and bonobos are our two closest relatives. Um, so clearly, you know, with our big brains and the fact that we're having sex all the time for non-reproductive reasons, uh, there's a, a role to that. There's a function, uh, an evolutionary value to that hypersexuality. And uh, yeah, and so it doesn't make any sense that having this kind of clear biological uh, commonality with chimps and bonobos and dolphins uh, that somehow we would be very uh, restrictive on sexuality, but we raise each other's kids, uh, women breastfeed one another's babies. You know, we go hunting, we share the food. I mean, the sexodon, we sort of go through many, many lines of reasoning that show that, look, you know, it might make us uncomfortable, some of us uncomfortable now, but that's clearly the nature of our species. And so you've got the Catholic Church and, you know, most churches trying to shut that down, but it doesn't work, right? Like even in societies where adultery is punishable by death, it's still rampant, you know, in, in schools where kids are taught, like, if you touch yourself, if you masturbate, you're going to go to hell and burn forever. They're still doing it, you know? So it's like clearly pretty deeply embedded in our nature. You talked about, you know, being in a van with your uh, partner and how do, I would imagine, you know, even though you two get along, obviously for the most part that you're traveling and making these trips that there are moments where there's some type of disagreement or conflict how do you resolve conflict and and it doesn't have to, just have to be with her but maybe with others because we are much more isolated and withdrawn and the divorce rates around 50 percent how do you handle verbal uh disagreements and, and resolve uh conflict verbally well, I would say that, first of all, we have very little conflict, uh, meaningful conflict. You know, there's always like, you, know, you said it was 10 o'clock. No, I said it was at 11 o'clock. Oh, shit. I, okay, well, whatever. Okay. So the first thing is kind of like what I was saying about Aikido earlier. Nobody needs to win and lose. That doesn't, you know, I thought you said it was the meeting was at 10. You thought you said it was at 11. We'll never know who's right, who's wrong. It doesn't fucking matter. Who cares? So there's always that. I think we need to understand that a relationship is not, uh, it's not a UFC fight that somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, right? Either you both win or you both lose. So we need to let go of that. I'm right. You're wrong approach. Um, which is hard, you know, because it's what I was saying earlier about dominance and submission and weakness and strength. And, you know, we think we know what those things mean, but it's much more nuanced than that. You know, like some of the strongest, most fucking masculine dudes I know are gay, right? They're like, 
And, you know, here's a guy you might meet him. You say, oh, he's, you know, he's this feminine. Like, yeah, but that guy had the balls to tell his mother when he was 16 that he's gay, knowing she was going to kick him out of the house. It was going to break her heart. And, the you know, thinking there's a good chance he's going to burn in hell for the rest of eternity. He had the balls to do that. Do you? Do I? When I was 16, could I have done that? You know, so it's not clear what strength and and submission and all those things are and what they look like. So I think it's really important to have that kind of nuanced understanding in in conflict because it's like I don't need to win this. I I don't even know what it looks like to win. I don't want to win. I just want us to sort of move forward and and not do damage to this thing that we both cherish. You know. Um, so I think that's important. And I, I think that, you know, I, I look at people given relationship advice and often, you know, obviously there's a lot of really good advice out there, but sometimes I feel like, I know this is going to sound bad, but when people say, oh, relationships are a lot of work, man, I'm thinking maybe you're in the wrong relationship. You know, like it's important to understand that relationships are living things and sometimes they change. They're organic things and sometimes they change into something else. And if you don't acknowledge that and let it change, then you get all this resentment and anger and then you start expressing that resentment and anger at each other when it's really not anyone's fault. It's just changed, you know, like, you know, it starts out as a worm and it turns into a butterfly. That's nobody's fault. It just happens. And if you insist like, no, it's just a flying worm. Like, no, man, it's a butterfly. And, you know, I've had, uh, I would say I've had four major significant loves in my life and I'm still really close with all with the three previous who I love. I fucking love and will always love them and always help them and, you know, whatever I can. And, uh, but that's painful. It's a lot less painful to say you lied to me or you cheated or you did this or you did that and fuck you. And I think we cover our pain with anger. Like we build this wall of anger to hide our sadness and our grief and our sense of failure that we couldn't save it. We couldn't keep it going, you know, forever. And I think we just need to sort of cut ourselves some slack and and cut each other some slack and just sort of let things play out the way they will and, and stop acting like we've got so much control over everything. Um, you know, and that was a big message in Sex at Dawn, too, that, you know, the book wasn't like, oh, everybody should, you know, go to orgies and, you know, be swingers or something. That wasn't it at all. It was just like, hey, this is the kind of animal we are. So, you know, if you're married and you're in a good marriage, but you still find yourself attracted to other people sometimes, that's no failure. That's just human. Now, that doesn't mean you need to sleep with other people. It just means 
don't feel horrible that you want to sometimes and don't feel horrible that your partner wants to sometimes. So let's start with a realistic sense of what, you know, what our baseline desires and appetites are and then work from there. And I think that makes things a lot easier, right? Because if, you know, if my partner, if I can sense that she's attracted to some dude, that's not threatening to me. That's normal. Of course, she's attracted to him. And if she sees a hot woman walking down the street, she's like, hey, hey, check her out. Like, don't miss this, you know, like, so we can share that. And that makes life so much better. You know, you see people pretending they, they're not attracted to anyone else. Are you fucking kidding me? That's the best possible way to kill your sex life. Uh, yeah, because it goes against the I idea of like you want to marry your best friend. And and if this was truly your best friend, you would definitely be pointing out the hot girl or hot guy or look at this or look over there. Right. That's the kind of conversation that best friends have. And I love that you were talking about letting go. And, and, and if we're not able to let go, at least to resentments, uh, I like to wrap up here with uh, you told a story and I can't remember which book it was about uh some guy some trainer in a hot air balloon and what happened uh, to him can you yeah. talk about that because i think that story really highlights the importance of recognizing when to let go yeah that's that's a true story um it happened in um sonoma california so this guy, I think it was Scottish, Brian Stevenson, I think was his name. Um, and he was visiting the wine country with his family. And they had booked a, a hot air balloon flight. And <clears throat> so they were, they, they do the flights in the early morning when the air's cool. And so they had the balloons laid out in the parking lot with the, you know, the baskets and the... And they were setting them up. And so they had them tied down, the baskets tied to the ground. And they were inflating the balloons. And then a breeze kicked up. And it was like, oh, this isn't, um, this isn't uh, going to work. We're not going to be able to fly this morning. But we'll still inflate the balloons so you guys can get some photos, like standing by the balloons with the, the mountains in the background and all that. And the sun's coming up. And so they, they were setting up the balloon. And the tether lines broke and the the professional balloon guys were like trying to manage the the basket and tie it back down and brian was like a personal trainer or worked in a gym or something so he was you know comfortable in his body and he jumped over and grabbed the basket to help them hold it down but then the other line broke and it started taking off and all the professionals immediately let go because you know, if you work with balloons, the minute your foot leaves the ground, you let go. Brian didn't know that, right? So Brian kept holding on because, of course, it felt like the right move. Like, you're trying to bring it down. You're trying to help. He held on. They all let go. The balloon took off. And he held on for several minutes. But he couldn't, like, pull himself up. And he just held on. And the balloon went up. And then he finally let go and died. And I was struck. I, I, I read about that in the paper and there was an interview with the sheriff and the sheriff said something like, we don't know why he hung on. And I was like, are you kidding me, dude? <laughs> I know why he hung on. He hung on because every 
Second, he thought, I should have let go before. Now it's too late. It's the fallacy of sunken costs, right? It's like the guy at the casino who's like, man, I've already lost half my money. I can't stop now. I got to get that back. And he won't stop until he's lost every fucking dollar because he's still thinking, I got to get that back. He doesn't understand that the time to quit was now. Yeah, he should have quit before, but before it's gone. So now is the only time, right? It's like that Chinese thing. The, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is now, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I thought about that and that sort of image and the tragedy of that situation just stuck in my head. And it's like, man, it's so emblematic of so many things, right? Like the job that you know you got to quit because it's eating your soul, but you keep thinking like, mm, yeah, but now's not the right time. Like if I had quit two years ago, it would have been really good. But now I'm making a little more money and I got this mortgage and, you know, I'll, uh, or, you know, the relationship you're in. It's like, I know this isn't the right relationship. It's not good for me. It's not good for her. But yeah, now's not the moment, you know, I wait until this will feel better. And, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not superior. I've done this shit. I've done every example I can think of. I've done it. But that story really crystallized it for me. It's like, yeah, man, I know exactly why he held on. Um, because it just always feels like the deal is getting worse and worse, you know? Um, but that's the way these deals are. <laughs> you just, as soon as you figure it out, he, if he had dropped when it was 30 feet off the ground, he would have broken his legs, but he probably would have survived, you know, but he held on and that, that was it. What are you looking forward to right now, Chris Ryan? Um, well, in the immediate future, I'm really looking forward to getting back in the van, dude. Like we, we were on the road. We left the U S uh, in October. So we've been in, you know, since then we've been in Guatemala, Thailand, Turkey, Tanzania, Greece, Georgia, Spain, I think that's it. And yeah, I'm ready. You know, I kept thinking I want to get home, but home is the van. I don't have a house. Uh, I got some land in Colorado that I might build on at some point, but right now it's just land. So um, I'm really looking forward to getting back in the van and sort of it's the best of both worlds because, you know, you're totally free. You can move. You can go to the desert, go to the river, go to the forest, go wherever you want. Um, but you're in the same space. It's the same bed, the same blankets, it's the same pillows. So there's that kind of like sense of like shelter and protection and familiarity that, that I miss. I've uh, I'm looking forward to that and, and, you know, seeing friends and, I mean, the U.S., I complain about the U.S. a lot, culture-wise, but, man, the nature here is just, there's no place like it. You know, I was on a flight, and there was a girl sitting next to me from Lithuania, and uh, I forget where she was headed to, to to work, I think, in I, wherever those slopes, the rich slopes, is it in Idaho or Omaha, where, like, yeah. all the billionaires fly in once a year, like Bill Gates, Buffett. Um, but anyway, uh, God, salt, it's not Salt Lake, Silver Lake. Anyway, uh, but she works there seasonally. 
And I said, what brought you to America? And she said, America's just got the most beautiful outdoor landscape, uh, you know, hiking, trees, mountains. And I was like, wow, really? She was like, you guys don't even know. You don't even know. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I don't know. Wow. And she's right. Like when I see, you know, I think that's the beauty of YouTube. I mean, as much as I want to demonize social media, it's also opened my eyes to how beautiful parts of Alabama are in Mississippi. And it's just like kind of broadened the scope of my uh, perspective of a lot of these states that, you know, in the news get this very narrow uh, uh, coverage of who they are and what they're about and, and what the state is like. And then when you watch people who travel throughout the country, all these travel vloggers, and they go to these places in Alabama and, and you know, in the backwater or, or they're hiking up in Montana, you're like, wow, beautiful lakes and rivers and streams and, and awesome people, you know? Yeah. yeah. It really opens your eyes like that. Um, yeah. Definitely. Relaxes your soul, too. Chris, is there anything about your journey um, that you think would be a benefit to anybody who's struggling with mental health or suicidal thoughts? Um, you know, I, I can only speak to my own experience. Um, but I think letting go of expectations is, has been so liberating, uh, for me, you know, and maybe that sounds like, bullshit coming from me like someone could be like oh yeah you wrote a best-selling book fuck you you know like letting go of expectations but i didn't start writing that book till i was 38 and until then like i was teaching english i was making 20 bucks an hour living hand to mouth uh you know growing weed to pay the rent whatever whatever i could do uh, I was just sort of hustling and doing my thing and um, and I was happy. And but that required letting go of this, you know, oh, I should have a I should be making more money. I should be, you know, measuring up to my friends who went to medical school or competing with this or that or uh, I managed to let go of all that shit. And that allowed me to start from a place where it was like, okay, all that really, I'm going to be on this planet for a while, who knows how long. I don't need to accomplish anything. All I need to do is enjoy it, be a decent person, feel some love, spread some love. That's enough. I don't, I don't need to start a company. I don't need to be remembered when I'm gone. I don't need to change the world. The world's going to do what the world's going to do all. I'm just here to enjoy the party. I'm not the DJ. I'm not the fucking caterer. I'm just here to enjoy the party. And I think if, I, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are carrying a lot of weight, a lot of weight of expectations. My life has to look like this. I need to please my mother. I need to live up to my father's. I need to like the family name or whatever the fuck it is. If you can let go of all that and say, no, 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 you're just here to enjoy the party. That's all you need to do. Don't fuck it up. Don't hurt anybody. If you can avoid it. If you lower your ambition to that, 
then everything above that, everything in addition to that is gravy. I think that's a much easier way to live. Um, and I don't mean to minimize, you know, people are dealing with trauma. People are dealing with stuff. I mean, I've been reading this research recently about intergenerational trauma. You don't even know. It's in your genes. If you're, I mean, they did this experiment with mice I was reading about a couple of days ago where they show mice a red light and then shock them. They have like their cages electrified. So the red light goes off, they shock. Red light, shock. Red light, shock. They do that. They Those mice then go off. They put them in a different cage. Those mice have, what are little mice called? Mouselings. <laughs> they have litters of mice. And then those mice have babies. And then those mice have babies. Six generations later, okay, they show a red light to these mice and they freak out. What the fuck is that? So great, 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 great grandfather had some traumatic experience. You don't even know about it. I don't know what the fuck happened to my great, 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 great grandfather. Maybe he almost drowned. So now that that's why I'm afraid of water. That's why I'm afraid of swimming. So there's so much stuff in us that we don't even know where it came from. And so I think the first step has to be forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Don't put down that weight and then take it from there. I, I love that. And it definitely it's not minimizing at all because, you know, the research also points to, you know, if we're just talking about being more specific with exercise, you're, you're not, if you don't enjoy it, if you don't enjoy the workout, you're not going to stick with it. And so the first thing they say is don't just pick the workout or the, 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 the regime figure out what you're going to find the thing that you're going to enjoy first and then, you know, build your life around that versus, Oh, this is going to help me lose 50 pounds or a hundred pounds. And so I would assume the same concept as you stated would apply to life, like do what you enjoy. And you know, I know you enjoy writing and reading and, and podcasting. And, and this is why you've been able to build the life up that you have because you enjoy also English and teaching. And so you're just taking what you're, you enjoy and you've evolved it over time. And I, I think um, for a lot of people, I think people don't recognize when they're bored. And so instead of recognizing that they need to evolve what they're doing instead of quit what they're doing, mm. uh, they, they, make the, they make the wrong decision in, in that respect, right? Um, Christopher Ryan, this is awesome. Last question I asked this of all my guests, and you kind of answered this already. But if there's more you want to add, because but I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Chris Ryan? Why not hang around? Why not? I mean, look, every storm passes. Every, even the longest night eventually becomes morning. There is pleasure down the, down the road. There is love down the road. There is surprise down the road. Shit happens we can't possibly anticipate. So why not hang around for it? Why not wait and see what happens and enjoy the party as, as best you can? And even if you're not enjoying it, just hang out. See what happens. Maybe the, maybe the music sucks right now, but maybe there's a good tune coming up soon. 
you know, maybe things are going to change. They're definitely going to change. They always change. So why not hang out and see what happens? That's about the best advice I can give, um, you know, in general. Uh, I love that. Um, Yeah, I'm listening to a book by Matt Hay called Midnight, The Midnight Library. And uh, she's, this girl's walking through a library and they and she's wondering if she's going to die. And the lady goes, you're not going to die because books are about possibilities and death is the opposite of possibilities. Mm. So I appreciate you saying hang around, explore the possibilities and uh, and let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you reaching out to get help for you calling the one eight. Uh oh. The new 988 number, that's right, it's no longer 1-800-SUICIDE. It's now 988. They made it easier for you. If you're, if you're international, if you're global, if you're in Tanzania, Sri Lanka, Budapest, uh, Ireland, wherever you are in the world, there are international phone numbers for you uh, in each and every single one of the show notes. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Chris. My pleasure, man. Honored to be here.